0: Hello, I'm Leanne Townsend, a family law lawyer and chair of the Family Law Group at Mills & Mills LLP. Welcome to Divorcing Well. In this week's episode, I'm so excited because my guest is such an inspiring person, and I'm so happy that she's here to launch season four of my podcast for me. Her name is Chanel Vogt. And she is the subject of a documentary, a short documentary that's coming out called Fault Lines, um, which uh, you're gonna be seeing promotions of on my social media, because I think it's, she has such a wonderful story. And she's come here to share with listeners her story um, of abuse and healing and strength and recovery. And I think it's gonna inspire all of my listeners. So welcome to the podcast, Chanel. I'm so grateful that you're here.
1: Thank you so much, Leanne, for having me.
0: So why don't we start by you telling listeners a little bit about your background and kind of the sort of where you were um, in the early days of, you know, the, the story that you're sharing.
1: Absolutely. So I think it's really important to kind of get a little bit of a background from where I came from. So I came from um, quite a a successful and conservative upbringing and I was a competitive figure skater. So dedication and determination and setting goals and and just setting uh, making sure that you're um, presenting yourself well in front of judges. um, That was a big thing uh, growing up in my in in the past. And as I was venturing through um, the competitive figure skating world, I came to my teenage years where I actually was homeschooled from uh, grade seven until grade 12 for figure skating, and then ventured actually into the Miss Canada pageant. The Miss Canada pageant was a really wonderful experience for me because having been in a very individual figure skating type of sport... It was, it was really wonderful to kind of meet all kinds of different women and young women who are aspiring and, and doing great things, going to university, aspiring to be doctors and lawyers and um, psychologists or, or just uh, teachers and just meeting all kinds of women from across Canada. And it was during that time and having been homeschooled for the majority of my school age life where I actually came to meet my the love of my life, <laughs> if you will. I was about 19 years old. I was in the Miss Canada pageant. I had ended up winning um, my very first time being in the pageant. I put everything into wow. it, just like I did with skating. And I had a goal, and I, I went for it, and I ended up, ended up winning, which was so wonderful. Um, and I met so many, like I said, so many wonderful people. And one of those wonderful people was the person that I fell in love with, I guess, to give a a, a little bit of more of an insight, um, you know, you get those butterfly feelings, you know, you start dating, you start falling in love. And of course, it's young love. And uh, you just want to be with them all the time. And so that's what I did. But At the same time, it was kind of trying to, I was trying to learn how to balance these new friendships, traveling across Canada and into Europe and into the States with the Miss Canada pageant, um, dating someone, which was completely new for me, and kind of trying to figure out a balance between, you know, parents and now she's dating someone. My focus was always skating and then it was always the pageant. So now there's this focus of a boy that mix wasn't, um, wasn't as well, well welcomed with uh, my parents and my family. And, and so I was testing boundaries and borders with my parents and seeing, you know, how much time can I spend with him? And how much time do I need to spend with the pageant? And then, of course, going to university, um, I was in and around that age. And so I took the year off um, just to be with the pageant. And so during that time is when the relationship really started to develop. And I will have to say about three or four months into the relationship was when um, some, what some people might think of as a red flag. And so one of the instances was he, we were packing up, he was moving from one place uh, and he was going to be moving back home. And so I was just helping him out over that weekend. And uh, I had a... A quick slap across the face when I was brushing my teeth. Of course, uh, he came up from behind and he gave me a hug and he said, "You know what? I was just, just out of character. I'm just excited. I'm moving to a new place, and you're here, and you know I'm really liking you." And so tears were coming, starting to come down my face, but I wasn't quite sure how to react because I was in such shock. Yeah. So what happened was I. I thought, you know what? Of course he didn't mean to do that. you know, I haven't seen anything like that before. He hasn't done anything like that before. And he's telling me that he loves, like, likes me. And he's telling me that he would never do that again. And he was just jerked moment. And um, so as time went on, it didn't happen again, but over the course of time and the more time that I was spending with the pageant, he wanted to have more of my time. So again, I was trying to balance this family time, boyfriend time, pageant time. It, it was difficult because he wanted a lot of my time. And as life kind of progressed, I was out in Europe for a month doing the Miss Globe International. So that was the main kind of like Miss Universe, but with, when, in the Miss Globe franchise. And so during that month, I was away. I would find myself going to a payphone or Skyping um, him as often as I could because he needed to know what I was doing and he needed to know uh, who I was with and who these people were because he didn't know any of them. Once I came home from that event, he wanted to know everything. He wanted to know who I was with. He wanted to know. Uh, what I was doing. And then of course, going forward, he was constantly checking up on me, phone calls, uh, text messages. And if I didn't answer my phone at a certain time, or send a text really quickly back, he would be questioning what I was doing.
0: Now, did and- you realize that those were red flags? Or were you kind of too young and naive about this stuff and, and didn't see it that way? And thought he just, oh, he cares. And you know, this is kind of normal in a relationship.
1: That's exactly what it was. I I definitely can attest to being naive in this situation because all I wanted was for someone to love me. And this was like my first boyfriend. And I just wanted, I wanted the attention. And I figured, well, my parents talk all the time. So I guess this is just how a relationship is. And so the checking in, I thought it was almost like a courtesy of like, I want to make sure you're safe. I want to make sure you're okay. Um, I want you all the time. I know we can't have each other all the time right now. Um, So it would definitely was, it definitely was more a naive moment. And, um, and, and I didn't see those as red flags. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Did your parents have a healthy relationship? Like, were you, did you grow up in an environment where there was any abuse? Or was it? like a health reasonably, I mean, no relationships perfect, but it was a reasonably healthy relationship.
1: Yeah. And, and that's, that's the other thing that I find having this platform um, is, is that I did grow up in a very loving and supportive home actually, this is a great segue to going into the next uh, the next portion of my story because my parents, um, you know, of course, everyone has parents who argue I mean, that's part of life. Um, but at the same time, you know, my parents were those ones that sat down in their house for like their house coat, the bottle of wine, a board of cheese, and like watched the news. And like we came down and like said our good nights and everyone gave hugs and kisses, and we went off to bed. And so, like that was the kind of culture that was in our home. So for someone to be maybe testing, me in terms of my boundaries and what I will expect or what I'm supposed to be giving to them was very out of the blue. So I had this role model of parenting. However, there are a lot of things that our parents don't share with us, and I think that it was a good thing that they didn't share, you know, their little spews. Because the following year, um, I ended. My dad ended up leaving my mom, and. I took that really hard because my dad was like the biggest cheerleader for me with when I was in skating. And, and so there was a point in my life where I had gone and lived with um, my ex and his family for a couple months, a situation that had happened because I told my sister that um, he had, he had hit me. So it wasn't that first hit that I had mentioned. It was another one closer to Christmas. And so I had confided in my sister. My sister went to my parents. My parents went to the police. And then, of course, I got called. I was with my boyfriend at the time. We got called to go to the police station. And I I denied everything. And that evening, I was so upset with my parents because I said, you know, you don't understand. This is going to ruin my relationship. He's never going to want to be with me. And at the end of the night, I ended up saying, like, I'm just going to pack and leave. So I ended up, you know, packing up my stuff and I pleaded with my mom to say, like, can you just take me, drop me off? And of course it was very difficult for her. And then when you watch the documentary, um, you get a little bit more in- information about, about what happened in that situation. But I had ended up living with them for about three months. And then I ended up calling my my dad one day on a, on private. For my dad to call me back because the deal was if i moved back in with him if i moved in with him all social media was gone all phone contacts were gone the only thing that i had and my number would change the only thing i had was between him myself and his family so in other words who made
0: that who said that was the deal him while your family
1: no that was his deal
0: those were his terms that you you can move in with him if you do that Exactly. That, wow. And, exactly. and at the time, like, you know, did you, what did you think of that? Like, did you think that was okay? Or you were just so in love and naive and you didn't, you just thought that, you know, this is, I guess, what has to be done because of what my family did, even though they were, you know, understandably pr- trying to protect you.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I felt like my parents stepped way over. Yeah. Um, that it shouldn't have, it, if anything, it should have been me going to the police about that. It, it wasn't their position. It wasn't their. but I, yes, looking back, absolutely. They were trying to protect me. And so for me, it was like, we need to make this right. And if he's telling me, this is how I have to prove to him that he's number one, right. um, maybe in time he'll calm down and maybe in time I can reconnect with my family. So after about three and a half months, I ended up calling my dad on private, told him to call the house back on private um, because I figured if any, if he found out that my parent that I was communicating with my parents, it would just be terrible because now I was his mom and his sisters actually were back home because one of his sisters were getting married. Um, So we had the house to ourselves, which meant that there was a lot more abuse that ended up escalating. So there became a time where I thought I need to escape. Uh, reached out to my parents and after about two weeks, um, we finally got out and I didn't know until later, but my parents had actually had a former FBI investigator um, helping with this escape. Wow. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was, it was pretty intense. After a couple weeks when I finally did leave, I sent him a email a couple of weeks later, just saying, I'm sorry that I left, but I had to do this. And at the time he was going to school to be a police officer. And so his professor said, well, now that you've been involved with the police, even though no charges were pressed, you should probably go and put a complaint. So he had this complaint about the police officers in terms of whatever they did was wrong. And of course I was a part of that investigation because my parents were there and they asked me questions. So he's like, if you, that's fine, if you want to leave, whatever, but if you want to continue to make things right, then you need to come down and at least be a part of this investigation. And of course I came down and then you're just wrapped up in a relationship all over again. And the cycle just continues. And so it was that summer that my dad ended up leaving my mom um, for other issues, other other things that are more personal to them. But it definitely played a big factor because at this point, I was trying to make our relationship a little bit more healthy in terms of just going up to see him on like a Friday or Saturday, um, making sure I was home with my parents and my family, and then pursuing my education and going to university that following September. As that happened and began to unfold, I ended up getting into uh, three different uh, universities. I got into U of T, I got into Glendon, and I got into uh, Ottawa. And so, of course, I thought, well, if my parents don't really like him, and if this relationship isn't going to work, I might as well go to Ottawa because it's farther away. I also got a, a full scholarship. And uh, I thought, you know, if this relationship is going to work, it's going to work with me long, like a long way away. So that those were my intentions going to the university that I chose. And so I came back every weekend to continue the relationship with him. And of course, being so far away and only seeing him um, every other week or so, he had decided, and his mama decided, well, if you're gonna be staying over now that we're home, you guys really should get married because in all our culture, that's that's what you do. So um, during that time, we sourced out different uh, different temples that would marry us. Um, and that's what we did. And then, of course, after that, it was around Christmas time. And he's like, well, I don't really like you being in, um, that far away. So, and now that we're married, maybe we can start a family. So at this point I was 21 years old and going to school and it was just, it was just one thing after another. And I thought, well, if this is what he wants and my parents' marriage didn't work out, maybe I can make this work. And so I thought I'm going to do whatever I can to make this, this work. And if bringing a child into the world is going to make him happy and keep him around, maybe I can at least keep him around because I couldn't keep my dad around. It was his own decision. Um, And it, and it hurt me having my dad leave um, weighed very heavily and I took it really hard. And so I was just trying to hold on to something. Um, And so he was the one that I held on to kind of coming up to the next segment of life in terms of finishing up the next semester. I decided at this point I was about three or four months pregnant with my son, Uh, so I moved back home and I, of course, broke the news to my mom because I hadn't seen her since Christmas. And never told her anything about what was going on because they wouldn't have agreed with me getting married to him, um, getting married at that young age and then getting pregnant. So everything was just hush, hush and quiet um, just so that, you know, I did everything for him. It was nothing to do with my family or myself. And as time progressed, I, um, he ended up moving in to where like into my mom's as we were looking for like our own little place to to live. And so during that summer, he stayed with us and we both got a job. And then come September, I had this beautiful little baby boy. A couple weeks after he was born, I was told that I needed to go back to work because I had only worked the summer and he had only worked the summer, so I needed to make more money. I couldn't get maternity leave. So two or three weeks after Mexi was, my son was born. Um, I went back to work uh, four days a week and I left my son with my neighbor and, uh, and that's kind of how it started. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. That's, that's tough. That's, a, you know, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, like one of the things that stands out in your story that you have, of what you've told us so far is that you're this young woman, you're, you're beautiful, you're smart, the world is your oyster, you know, you're Miss Canada, you're, you know, this fabulous figure skater, you come from a loving family, seem to have had a happy childhood, and yet you found yourself with this man who is mistreating you. And I think, you know, a lot of people have a hard time understanding, you know, they, they think that women who get, get into abusive relationships must have really low self-esteem or, you know, people make these judgments. And, but, you know, the reality is that it, as your story shows, like women from all walks of life can find themselves and I should say men, because men can be also victims of abuse. But you know, you can find, but but from you could you could come from a wonderful home life, have everything going for you, um, and yet still fall in love with this kind of person and stay. In in your case, like why, like you know, why do you think? It, it, what were the factors that caused you to to stay as long as you did stay?
1: That's a great question. Um, I think it really ties back to the relation, the broken relationship that I have uh, had with my father and not having him be there to protect me, not having him be there um, to support me and to answer, you know, he was going through his own thing. And as an adult now, I look back and and respect that and I, I you know, I, I understand as much as I understand. But at the time I didn't, and i I just needed, I just needed someone who was going to protect me and the man who showed me that he was going to protect me, whether or not, you know, maybe we were downtown Toronto and we had gone out for the night and he showed me he was protecting me because someone came up and started hitting on me or something like that. You know, right. I took that as you're, you're protecting me because I'm, I'm important to you and I should be protected. And so those little gestures and of course other ones too, along the way, that that showed me that you know my dad right now isn't answering or reaching out to me but he is yeah so that's kind of where I kept and I'm not blaming my dad at all no no it was just how how I was perceiving life at that time and who I was clinging on to
0: well yeah and you were very young I mean you're you're super young and you got a baby now you know, it, it's understandable, you're clinging to what seems like the security for you and for your child, because you now have to think about a child, not just yourself. So, um, you know, where you left off, you're, you're in the situation, you're working, um, didn't get a maternity leave. Um, and so kind of what happened from there?
1: Right. So the next thing that happened after that was, um, I was starting to because we were now living in our own place, he had a baby. Um, there were certain woman rule, like woman, woman roles that I had to, to perform and he had his male roles. And he told me right off the bat that, um, you know, I'm up here and raising his hand to like the head level and you're down here raising like under the shoulder level. Yeah. And so for me, I thought, well, now I'm married and now I have his child. So I need to respect his rules.
0: Was and he working as a police officer? Did that ever happen?
1: It never ended up happening. That's a great question. No, he never ended up pursuing that. Um, I know that through family court, it was an or like criminal court, the different things that we ended up going through. It came out like I, I ruined his life because I went to the police. Um, but I mean at the end of the day, uh <laughs> it, it's it's interesting to see, you know, what someone might study. Um and then it, I'm just really glad that he he isn't a police officer. I can tell you that much.
0: Yeah. Well and it is interesting because there is a higher rate of domestic violence amongst, you know, police officers and, you know, military, you know, I think there's something to be said for people who are drawn to, you know, positions of power and control, you know, in their job that they might, you know, again, I'm speaking very generally, I want to stress that to listeners, because there's lots of, you know, gr- I have lots of police officers who I know as friends and clients who are the nicest people. But, you know, th- there is that research that shows that, um, you know, sometimes people who are controlling in relationships and whatnot are drawn to jobs where they have more power and control.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely, and um, I, I think it just attests to the authoritarian, like the thor- the authority that they yeah. like to have in their life. And yeah, it is really interesting with that thought um, that control continued. And as the months progressed, and we were now living on our own, uh, we were subleasing, so we had uh, tenants in the bottom, and uh, there more more abuse uh, was happening more. Um, the cycle was continuing to escalate. And I think that's really important for people to know is that this cycle is, is really very vicious because you'll have a couple days, even a couple months, or even a couple weeks where things are like, almost like that honeymoon effect where they're loving and they're caring and, and, uh, they're taking care of you and things are fun and you giggle, you go out for movie dates, you do those fun things. But then it comes time where, you know, he might come home from work and he's tired. I'm tired too. And for me, I just was so used to this cycle that I just kept quiet because I knew that if I spoke up or said anything, even, even if I thought it through a hundred million times that I was saying it the right way, it would be that one, that 1% chance that I didn't say it the right way. And, and I there would be repercussions. I I mean, I I could go through some of the abuse that happened, but I also don't want it to be triggering to other people. Um, So to respect that, I'll just kind of skip to like one of the last, the last ones. Um, And this is the one that kind of, the abuse was kind, it was escalating so quickly where it was now happening on a weekly basis. And I was fortunate enough to have an out. So my out was work and I was working the four days a week still. And at this point, we, I'd say we were four or five, I guess, maybe seven or eight months in, and now I'm pregnant with my second child. And I was um, going to work. And during one of my days off, uh, my son was starting to teeth. And all of us mothers know that that could be <laughs> a, a, when you're pregnant with another one too. <laughs> a teething, lot. Doing housework, uh, you know, Working (laughs) exactly, there's a lot of factors going on, and uh, he made it very particular that the role of his wife means that I'm doing all of his meals. He was a bodybuilder, so there's a lot of meals, um, to be prepped and ready. And uh, and so one day he was coming home from work, and I had sent him a text message earlier that day saying, You know, I uh, it's been a long day, really tired, Uh, baby's been teething not feeling so great with this new baby uh your dinner's in the microwave and uh, I I can you know just heat up when you get home so long story short uh, by the time he did get home that message didn't mean anything and uh, the duties of a wife was you know massage my feet and for the very first time in all of the relationship <laughs> since the beginning at least I stood up for myself and I said I I don't think that you're respecting me. Um, it's been a long day for me too. And essentially uh, the last, that, the last uh, form of abuse was him going to punch me. Um, I raised my hands. He grabbed my hand and punched down on one of my, my left arm. Uh, and then he went to go and punch my face and I covered my face with both my hands. And, um, at that point, I realized that this was um, it wasn't the worst of the abuse, but having a child uh, lying in bed uh, next to you and knowing that you're pregnant and someone is beating you up. It really kind of puts you into a perspective of, OK, let's be quiet again, um, but I'm not sure how much I longer I can take this. Mm-hmm. Um the following week, uh, actually, it was that during that week, we went over to visit his mom. It, of course, it was during the three days off that I had had. And I, she had always said, if anything ever happened to you, um, if he, she kind of had a feeling that he was doing some not so nice things. And so she would always like joke around and like pretend to beat him up and say, you know, I would always protect her over you. And uh, so I finally thought, you know what, I can't do this on my own anymore. Um so I confided in her and his sister and they literally said do your womanly things and just be quiet. Wow. And, and he'll get over it like he gets over it all the time. Wow. Um Yeah, it was just <laughs> that was it was there was just no way out. And of course I wasn't telling my mom or my friends because at this point too all of the communication that I did have was through his phone. I was not communicating with anyone because the control meant if anything's happening to you well none of that can get out if I'm controlling who you talk to
0: yeah wow that's uh you must have felt so alone
1: I did I I I knew like for myself I had my faith so like there would be days where I was in the shower and just praying and just crying but then that was not a safe place for me either, because then there would be times where he might barge into the bathroom, realize that I'm crying and I'd be dragged out with my ponytail. Um, and so, yes, it was it was a point where I felt like I was stuck because the money I was making go- was going towards his account. So he was paying everything. Um, and so there was no way for me to get out financially. So I was thinking, you know, I can't go to my parents because number one, my dad's not around. Um, and my mom, you know, goodness, like, God forbid that I wanted to go back to him. There's no turning back if I go back to my parents because they went to the police once before. They're going to go to the police again. Um, so there's this fear. And to, to kind of like wrap up the story. I had gone to my mom's to drop off my son before work that week. And it was like a spring, beautiful spring day. And I was wearing a sweater, like a warm sweater that went past my arms. And my mom's like, why are you wearing like that warm sweater? It's hot out. You're going to be hot. And I was like, no, no, no. Air conditioning in the office. I'm going to be, I'm going to be cold. So I'm wearing it anyways. That was my excuse. But of course, like my arms were bruised and I, in the morning would just drop off my son and I'd go like a little bit earlier and I would crash on the couch for about a half an hour before work. Cause I was just exhausted. And I told my mom then she had no idea yet, but she's, I said, mom, I don't know when just be ready. That's all I said. Okay. I don't know when just be ready. And, um, it was a week later, uh, when I went over, um, an, an incident happened that I share in the uh, documentary. And at that point, he took the keys to my car. Uh, He told me that I was no longer allowed out of the house unless for work, Um, and that he would take my son uh, eventually once he was walking, that I would have to pay him child support (laughs) um, because I was making the, the, the bigger income at the time. Um, and that I could do whatever I wanted to this new baby. Like if it was a girl, he didn't want it. And if it was a boy, well, he just didn't care. So at that point I was like, (laughs) I don't know what to do. I just, all I knew what to do out. The only thing I could do was just run. There was, you know, I told him that morning, like, I'm going to call the cops. And he's like, here's my phone. You know, good luck to you. If you're going to be alive by the time they get here. Wow. So I didn't, as soon as he went to work, um, I ran over to my neighbors, told them what was going on. Um, they That's a whole nother story for another day. Um, Mm -hmm. But essentially I called through their phone to my mom because I didn't want to risk the fact if he he came home and I called my mom, I'd be in trouble. So, um, yeah, so I called them. My mom came, my brother, my sister's. My sister-in-law, they all came and they helped me escape. And that was that was my big day. That was the day I gave, I told my brother like, take my phone, take the, the SIM card out. I don't want to see it, and I don't want it because if I do, I know that I'm going to go back right back to him. And so there I had done this enough times and circled back so many times that I knew that disconnecting all communication was the only way for me to go forward.
0: Yeah. Wow. And like, you know, after that, like, obviously, (laughs) I'm sure he wasn't happy when he found out that you had left. Um, And I'm assuming when you left, you took your son um, with you and obviously you're pregnant with the other child. So um, did you then have like a big thing you had to go through in family court with him or what happened there?
1: Yeah. So I ended up going to a safe house. I was so fortunate enough that my, my aunt works in the legal field and her cousin, my cousin, her daughter um, was super supportive as well as my grandmother. So I ended up living with them in the middle of nowhere for about two years while I was going through all of this. Uh, About two weeks after I left, my aunt said, listen, like she works with, uh, in criminal law, she's like Chanel. I've been through my own story and she has her own incredible story that she's overcome. And she's like, Chanel, you need to go to the police. I know you're scared, but it is the only way that is going to protect you. And I did not believe that because he said, if you ever went to the police, I will come after you and your family. So I did go to the police station um, and I also obtained a family lawyer it wasn't you <laughs> but they, i wish it was <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but the family lawyer that i did have was was excellent and she helped me through um she gave me a long list of things that i needed to do um that could help uh, alleviate some of the cost just by giving me things that i could do on my own and then yeah. give her them when they were done um and then i did go to family court and uh one thing that's really important to know is his truth about saying, if you ever go to the police, I will come after you, was real. Um, he ended up going to the cops uh, about two weeks later, say, uh, saying that me and my family came and tried to beat him up. And so, of course, uh, he ended up uh, being charged. The first one, he ended up being charged with uh, assault times two and assault with a weapon times two. And the police officer was like, I believe there was, there's been a lot more. Um, but I was afraid that if I said everything, I would be there longer than the six hours I was already there.
0: Wow!
1: And also, um, I was told that a police officer isn't going to believe me. And yeah. so that was the Gaslighted. biggest <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That was the biggest thing. And so for me to come out on the other end, knowing that the police officer believed me, And that the police officer cared. And to this day, I'll get an email from that police officer around my birthday asking, how am I doing? How are my kids doing? And uh, that just goes to show you that the police officers know what they're doing. and, And they're here to support you. And that's a big thing that I want to share with other people. I know that there are people who've had negative experiences, but they see this all the time. And they know when you're telling the truth. And they know when you need help and, and, uh, and they knew I needed help. And they had said that had I stayed, um, I probably wouldn't have been around much longer because of how things were escalating.
0: Yeah, that's awful. I mean, it took so much courage for you to do that. Um, I'm wondering if, if there's somebody out there who's listening to this podcast, who is perhaps in the situation that you were in. What is some advice that you have for that person?
1: Mm, that's really good question. If you have someone who who's been a friend of yours or a family member that you trust, but you haven't told them yet, but you feel like you know they're they're always there because they care about you. Um, they might be that person that you can confide in when you're ready um, when you're ready to leave. Also, for them, or for them to be encouraged, that going to the police is is a good thing to do because they can handle your situation. They're not going to just um, you know listen to your story and then send you out. They were going to give you tools, and they will set you up with um, different people that can help you move forward. Also, women shelters. there are many women shelters that I have been able to start communicating with because I want to be connected with them um, because they provide a wealth of knowledge not only just um, support but they also find you a home that can be safe and I think that's really important when you're coming out um, of a situation like this is to find a safe space and if you don't have a family member or a friend who can help that help you with that then it's really important that you, let the police officer know, or maybe people are starting to communicate with a family member and making a plan. Um, I think it's really important for me. I didn't have a plan. It kind of just happened. And um, but I think that if they're listening to this and they have an idea that this is like, they, they do want to leave and that this is the time that they connect with these kind of people so that they can make a plan and they can make it safe, and and they can come out on the other end.
0: I know we uh, chatted just briefly about this before we started um, our interview, and I was mentioning, because it's currently in the news, the whole Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, um, the defamation case, and you know, there's people now saying that there's a con- they're concerned that maybe victims of domestic violence won't come forward because of uh, how this case was decided. And as you know, someone who clearly is a victim of—and I don't like the word victim, but survivor, I guess, is better—of domestic violence. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it will it, that case will have any impact, good, bad, n- neutral?
1: I think that there, I mean, I I think that there is a strong reason why, like if people are seeing this in Hollywood, if people are viewing this as people that they looked up to as, as something to to take away with them to really think about. Um, But I think, I think the reason why for me looking at that is unfortunate because whether or not you're on one side or the other, at the end of the day, a trial is is going to get the worst <laughs> out of everyone, right? And yeah. and I think that's really important to remember, and to also remember that you are the best person that knows your side of the story. There's always going to be two sides of the story, but if you are honest and you are um, upfront, um, and you go, if you're going to get help, say to um, with a lawyer or a police officer just knowing your story and knowing that um, you want to go forward with something that's important to you. Um, And if that's your goal, then go and do it. Because at the end of the day, yes, if it goes to trial, the judge is going to have an opportunity to judge which way it goes. But at least you've said what you've needed to say. And I think at the end of the day, that's really important.
0: I agree. And it's interesting because that's what I, um, you know, have tell clients and when I used to be a crown attorney when I was dealing with victims of domestic violence is I would say like don't look to the court process or the justice system to validate your feelings or your experience or your story because you can't be guaranteed of the result. You, you, you could be telling the truth, but you don't have control over what that result will be. Um, but if it helps you to, you know, share your story and, you know, on some level be holding the abuser accountable, then, you know, you can't, you are accomplishing that by sharing. And, and I do think, you know, it, it is important for people to have the courage to step forward and is you like you did in your case and, and press charges so that these people, these abusers don't get you know, away with it. And um, like obviously in the Amber or her Johnny Depp case, no one ended up being, it wasn't a criminal case. It had to do with defamation, um, which is also just another interesting thing. And I don't know if it's uh, come up in your situation at all, but, you know, sometimes that's something abusers do as well is when a victim speaks out or a survivor speaks out, they'll threaten to sue them for defamation. So, you know, a lot of survivors end up feeling like they have to keep quiet because even though they might win the defamation suit, like they might not have the money for the lawyers and, and the stress of having to go through that. And I'm wondering, in your case, if you experienced, you know, any threats that way or how, you, you know, how you if it even came up and if so, how you dealt with it.
1: There's been multiple times where I've been contacted. And uh, where right now I'm not supposed to be contacted at all unless going through like our lawyers. So um, for me, uh, I, nothing has come up in terms of like a, a legal suit, you know, I, and I'm hoping that because I'm sharing my story, I'm also sharing it, keeping in mind um, the privacy of both of our sides. And I think that really um, is Im- important to me because of how, I view the healing aspect because not only am I healing and my children having to to heal from this, but I'm sure the other side of the family has also had to try and heal from this in whatever capacity they have been um, or if they have been. So it's really important to me um, that at the end of the day, um, we are very safe um, and careful about what we share. And, um, just to keep in mind of like the protection of other people. And so for myself, I haven't had that situation where, you know, the other party has come and said, well, you you can't share our story because, or you can't share your side of the story. Um, and I'm just at the beginning of sharing my story publicly. So it's very possible that in the future, I might have to deal with something like this, but I think at the end of the day, um, I respect everyone for who they are, Um, not essentially what they've done. Um, I think that's really important because, I mean, it's been 10 years since my situation. I've grown, I've changed, I'm a completely different person. So much so that I have a voice and I can share my story and it's important for me to share my story. Um, But then I also have to recognize that, you know, he's a very different person too. And I will always remember to keep like, Um, as I'm sharing my story, his and his side of the family, very private um, because it's not anyone's business. Um, My story is just kind of the platform of where I want to go in terms of this is important to me because I want to help others achieve success and healing and uh, growth moving forward with their life, not focusing on who it was that, um, that hurt them in the past, but moving forward.
0: And tell listeners a little bit, I know we're, we're getting very short on time here, but I want to just touch upon, so where are you at now? And, you know, you mentioned you want to help others who are going through these types of things. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and um, what you're involved with.
1: Yeah, so right now, currently, I am gathering a community of ju- not just professionals, but lots of different professionals um, who work with these kind of individuals, such as yourself, Um, psychologists uh, healers in all different realms uh, social workers women's shelters all kinds of different people who who are helping these women go through and and the reason why I'm trying to gather a big community of these types of sources is so that I can help somebody else I've had many people come to me saying Chanel I knew your story and just a couple months ago I had a woman and her daughter because she knew my story and I took her in for a couple months until she got up on her feet. And that experience alone showed me that this is what I want to do. So yes, I have my day job, but I'm, I want to grow this community because this is where my heart is and I want to see other people grow and heal from it. So that's kind of where I'm starting and where I'm going. And uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing how it, how it all turns out.
0: That's amazing. And I mean, and if I can help in any way, definitely, you know, keep let me know, because I'm certainly happy to help this is a cause that, you know, I, have it's dear to my heart. And I've done I've worked with a lot of victims. And I, I know I'm using that word, but I should be using survivors. It's, I think, going back to my old Crown Attorney days, where that's how we referred to them in, in terms of the, the criminal process. But, um, I mean, they really are survivors. And it, it is, a it, unfortunately, it's, you know, still very widespread. Abu- domestic abuse in all its forms is still very widespread. Um, just uh, be- the sort of final question, um, Fault Lines is the short documentary that, is being released that tells your story. Um, can you tell listeners a little bit about that and then how they might be able to find out more about you and Fault Lines?
1: Absolutely. So, Fault Lines is the documentary that um, a really beautiful friend of mine put together. And she actually knew me back when I was um, going through all of this. And uh, so she knew me through the whole process, which is really beautiful. Um, and she really was able to captivate my story and to really focus, not just on the traumatic situation, but how I healed and move forward and, and what it took to get there because it, it wasn't a one or two year thing. She filmed it over the course of four years. I was completely different people every time she filmed because I was wow. growing and it's really beautiful to kind of see the rawness of the documentary. Um, And it was really important to me at the very beginning that it would be wrapped up in this beautiful bow. It would look like, you know, Hollywood movie. But once I saw it, I thought, no, this is exactly what people need to see because this is what's going to resonate with them. And so that's what this documentary is. It's the rawness of my story and the rawness of what healing actually looks like. Um, and, and that's the most perfect way to show and showcase what it takes to get through. And so our hope is that we can um, uh, launch this uh, publicly so that people can view it. And, uh, and we are hoping to have some tours in in the coming months to uh, sit down with people. Um, universities and having panels and something that you and I can discuss after too, because we think that I think that you'd be a beautiful no- knowledge on the stage to be able to be a part of that panel and to answer some questions that people have.
0: I'd love that. Definitely. Well, thank you uh, so much for joining me today, Chanel. Um, I really appreciate you sharing your story. You are so inspirational. And I think just by sharing, you're going to help so many, so many women, let alone all the other stuff you're doing to help as well. So um, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And thank you to my listeners as well. Please like, subscribe, and join me here again next week. On divorcing well. Hi,
1: my name is Janet Finaki, and I'm the host of the Resilient People Podcast. I interview regular people from around the world who've experienced something major in their lives, bounce back, and found a purpose in helping others be resilient too. They're folks like you and me, and their stories are totally relatable, extraordinary, and inspiring.
0: I had no idea what I could do until I did it. But it's the motivation of doing for other people that you know need support, need help, that you're able to really push and dig and find what you can do.
1: Have an open discussion and not write us off and allow us to actually talk about our disability. Like don't assume my limits Mm -hmm. for me.
0: We went for a drive, told her what her mom was going through and what the likely outcome is going to happen. And we both just bawled. And then finally, Kate just said that we need to have hope. And to be resilient, you have to, you have to have hope.
1: Join me as we get to know some incredibly resilient people. The Resilient People Podcast is everywhere you get your podcasts. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode.
0: Thank you for joining me on Divorcing Well. If you have any separation or divorce questions, you can get in touch with me via my website at www.leannetownsend.ca.